Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Peter Scott. Peter is an author, speaker, and consultant, helping individuals and organizations understand and deal with the impact of technological disruptions, principally artificial intelligence. He is also the author of Artificial Intelligence and You, What AI Means for Your Life, Your Work, and Your World, he has a podcast by that same name, Artificial Intelligence and You. I really enjoyed Peter's insights on what AI will mean for our lives and how we can thrive through the changes ahead. I'm sure you will also enjoy Peter's insights and benefit from the conversation as well. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at MahanTavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on PartneringLeadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. When you get a chance, don't forget to follow the podcast on your favorite platform and leave a rating and review that will help more people find the conversations and benefit from them. Now, here's my conversation with Peter Scott. Peter J. Scott, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Man, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this and I've enjoyed the episodes of your podcast I've managed to catch already. Peter, I am binge listening to your podcast, Artificial Intelligence and You, and read your book, Artificial Intelligence and You, What AI Means for Your Life, Your Work, and Your World. So can't wait to get more of your thoughts and insights with respect to AI and how it's going to impact us, both our lives and especially our organizations and the leaders leading teams and organizations that listen to this show. But would love to first start out with your upbringing, Peter. Whereabouts did you grow up and how did your upbringing impact the kind of person you've become? Thank you, Mahan. That's a great question because my history is prismatic and an insight into why I'm doing this work. I grew up in England. In fact, my family didn't move from that county for several generations prior to me. But then I went to study computer science at Cambridge and I was big on the space industry. So I moved to California zero generation immigrant and worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, starting out navigation, getting spacecraft to other planets, and moved into enterprise computing. So JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, then looked at moving for quality of life, moved up with my wife, who I met at JPL, to Vancouver Island, continued working remotely as a contractor for JPL, but then started branching out. And I'd always been nerd. I feel comfortable saying that because I am one, so I'm not going to <laughs> alienate myself there. And the process of learning about that, like no one had the label of Asperger's when I was a kid. So the one they used was weird, or at least that's the one that I can say on the air. So learning about that was a process of discovering and opening up more 
parts of myself. So I became a coach as well. I had background in neurolinguistic programming at that point, and then got into speaking in public. And that was Again, something that if you had known me before that, you would say, this is the least likely person. If we'd had a yearbook at the school I went to, which they didn't do that sort of thing, it would have said, least likely to do anything involving public communication. Yet I ended up doing TEDx talks, which I would not have believed 15 years ago, but I just recorded my third one because when my children arrived, I had a realization about what the future meant with respect to artificial intelligence. And I realized that it was really incumbent on me to do what I could for their future. And that I had an ability gleaned from having a foot in two worlds of technology and communication to be able to bridge those gaps. And my most recent talk is very much about bridging that divide between the tech world and the non-tech world. And here we are. So I love talking to business leaders, especially about what's going on here. What a beautiful way to position your background, Peter. You have a growth mindset from aspiring to be involved in the stars and the space to ending up at NASA to then looking at the opportunity to give talks, even though that wasn't a comfortable thing, and finding a way to do it well. And then the growth mindset with respect to AI in that this is something that can be transformative to our lives, trying to understand it better and share that with businesses and organizations. So before we go much deeper into AI and its potential impact. How do you define artificial intelligence, Peter? That's one of those things that a level where you can read just about anything into it. And there are computer science definitions of artificial intelligence being computer software that's able to learn and expand its capabilities from its execution. I'm not sure that it's as useful to, in particular, this audience as saying it's when a computer can do something that a human could do, but would not be able to write down the steps for. Now that is a subset perhaps of what artificial intelligence is doing at the moment, but I think it's the more illuminating one. And the example that I like to give of that is recognizing faces. We can recognize faces. Most people are better at it than I am. <laughs> That's part of the Asperger's, but you can't explain it. Ask someone, tell me how to recognize faces. You can do it, but you can't explain it. And if the saying that computers can only do what they're programmed to do was accurate, because we've held on to that for years, then AI shouldn't be able to do that. But it can, we can train it. It can't explain how it does it much better than we can, but it can do it. So I think that's where it's an illuminating definition because now you're primed to look for where else can AI do things like that. You mentioned that AI can do it in a lot of different spaces. You open up your TEDx talk, one of them, talking about the fact that there are futurists saying that the fact that AI will be able to do everything is an existential threat to humanity, while others say the fact that AI will be able to do everything will lead us to living in utopia. What are your views on that? <laughs> Both of the above. This is why I love talking about this with people like you. I've listened to a lot of episodes of your podcast. 
and it's your evident enthusiasm and passion for this. It's not just a scheme to get eyeballs and eardrums. And you hit upon one of the most important things about AI at the moment, which is what fascinates me and why I'll never run out of opportunities to talk about it. It evokes this range of reactions from people, from deep fear to incredible excitement. The same thing is doing that to different people. And it's saying more about the people than it is about the technology. It's like looking in a mirror. And I like to get people to look at not just the technology, but look at your reaction to the technology, because that is illustrative of your strengths and your weaknesses as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a business person or a manager, especially. It is providing you an insight into that because it's almost like a horoscope or a tarot reading. It is reflecting back something about yourself that you should look at. Now, to address the question, is it going to result in utopia or uh, extinction? If we look out far enough, then they're both possible. And the reason that our best minds can't tell us which one we're going to get is because it involves a factor that they can't predict, which is us. What are we going to do with that? And that's why I'm here, and this is the debt that I owe to my children, to help people understand exactly what it means to them. That's why it's important to listen to voices like yours. I know you also quote Peter Drucker in your book. I love Peter Drucker as well, that the best way to predict the future is to create it. We could go in either one of those directions if we don't take the time as leaders of organizations and in the community to understand the potential of AI. By understanding it, we can create the type of future that we want. Now, one of the interesting things you mentioned, Peter, is the fact that to a certain extent, this AI is holding a mirror up to us where it reflects our humanity and we see ourselves. And I wonder with AI, especially generative AI, reflecting humanity, if it will also reflect and therefore scale a lot of the negatives that already exist in humanity? Mm, it's a terrific question and a very important one that is hot right now. So we just wound our timescale back from some unknown point in the future where it's existential consequences to what's happening now. And that is that it does, for instance, perpetuate a magnified bias. I like to say that it's going to let you make the same mistakes, only faster and at scale. So you've got to be aware, as someone that deploys this, of where are your weaknesses already? Because that's one way the AI would reflect those back to you if your data is not clean, if you're cavalier about the way that you deal with data with respect to minorities, for instance. It will show you that pretty fast, as long as you've got the awareness to look at it. The most important thing is don't expect the technology to rescue you from your own flaws. That mindset of looking for the magic bullet is never going to work, and it's not going to work any more with this one than anything else. You've still got to be the right kind of leader, the right kind of visionary to use this responsibly, and especially with an organization that's composed of many people who are all having 
deep reactions to this technology at the moment as a result of being inundated with stories about it. A lot of the organizations I'm interacting with, there are varying degrees of reactions to AI. There are lots of people that have started using it in their own lives and they're really excited. There are people who are terrified. One of the concerns that I see is that many of the executive teams and the most senior leaders are not fully aware, first of all, of the amount of AI that is already used in many of the things that they use in their organizations from applicant tracking systems to other aspects of their organizations and don't fully have their mind wrapped around the potential impact of artificial intelligence, not just generative AI, on their organizations. So when you are talking to leaders, Peter, where do you tell them to start in trying to understand and wrap their heads around this? Start with the people that are closest to your data systems and enterprise information technology. And the reason I say that is I go back to, I was around for the beginning of the web and management had no clue that there was such a thing as the web at that time. They barely got their heads around email. And it was at the lowest levels where I was inhabiting at that point that the web started and people would develop these sites and discover that they could do it. And it was a very easy entry, a very low bar to entry into that space. And they were doing all this stuff, just grassroots, spare time, talking to each other. And the leadership had no idea about that. I'd say that right now with AI, we're at the point where the leadership has just discovered that there's such a thing as the web and you can have a website and these cycles happen faster. Now that probably took a good year at the beginning of the web before that became on people's radars. But now we've seen what can happen in a few weeks. And so the people that curate your data, especially if you want to get a lead in AI, it's dependent upon the data that you have to give it. That can range in so many ways. The bigger the business, the more likely it is that you've got a large amount of data that can be useful for training classic AI, never mind about large language models. But garbage in, garbage out. And if that data has not been properly sanitized, has not been inspected and vetted for bias, then you'll just produce the same bad results. I call it like giving a toddler a chainsaw. They might cut down a tree, but they're more likely to cut off their own leg. Be the one that understands how to use the chainsaw. That's a scary analogy, but an apt one, because there is a lot of bias that can creep in to the decision-making because of that initial data set. Outside of the data that the organization might have and looking for that data and use of AI there, where else can executive teams and leaders of divisions and departments think about use of AI and experimentation with AI? Say the easiest one of those to address is with the large language models like ChatGPT and content generation. And we've seen some of the examples of where ChatGPT fails. And there's going to be a lot more of those because with the amount of piling on that's happening at the moment, there will be a backlash that's driven by examples of what it doesn't do. It's quite also reflective of what's going on with self-driving vehicles a couple of years later. So understanding where that sweet spot is important. It's 
very good for content generation tasks that are either repetitive or formulaic or intuitive or artistic, but not ones that have a high liability factor, making decisions that have legal consequences, regulatory consequences, not ones that depend upon precise calculations either. That said, there is a lot that falls into what's left. It can range anywhere from generating marketing content, this is the sort of thing it's really good at, to helping frame policy documents. The important thing here is, again, don't use it as a substitute for knowledge, use it as a substitute for typing. If you try and do a race to the bottom and use this to replace training for people, that is a recipe for catastrophic errors because it does make mistakes. And like the self-driving vehicle caveat, count on it to make the worst decision at the worst time. But on the other hand, it will generate content faster than you can type it. And if you can turn a typing problem into a reading one, making sure that what is written is correct, then think of how much faster one is than the other. The same applies for using those to generate code. Again, it would be catastrophic to turn its code over or that from something like uh, GitHub Copilot or Google's Alpha Code, put it straight in the continuous integration pipeline without looking at it. That would be horrible. But inspecting it, making sure that the tests for it are complete, then it's going to go a lot faster. And then something like half the code being written in Silicon Valley at the moment is being done with the help of these kind of models. What surprised me with generative AI, such as ChatGPT, is that it seemed to be a lot more creative than we were thinking for years AI could be. So mm -hmm. much of the advice I was hearing is AI can duplicate repeatable tasks and take those jobs away, but it can't take away human creativity. Now we could question whether ChatGPT is as creative as a human or not, but it has a lot of potential for creativity. I think what it says about creativity is it's reflecting to us that our understanding of and values surrounding creativity could stand more self-examination, more evaluation. It's unfortunate that what we had thought for some time were uniquely human markers of creativity can be done so much by AI. But in, in some respects, a lot of creativity is a random number generator in the right place, right? When AlphaGo comes up with Move 37 that Go people look at and go, wow, we've never seen anyone do that before. It opens up the space to them. It is an undeniably creative act, or it would be if a human did it. When an AI does it, we can call it something else, but the end result is something in the field that we call creativity. And the example that people often give in this respect is if we talk about generating music, people say, oh, I want to hear Beethoven's music. I don't care for an AI that can be a good imitation of Beethoven because it has no history. But Beethoven, I'll listen to because I know about his struggles and his pain and what he was going through. Absolutely, you're going to listen to Beethoven for that and an AI that sounds the same, don't care about. But how much music is composed by people where you don't know their name? It's incidental music on a movie or a, a TV show. You don't know who wrote it, let alone care about their life story, but it's important. Now that kind of creativity 
is in mortal danger as humans. So that's definitely now in the danger zone. Not so much because of computers becoming particularly creative, but because this type of creativity is something that now been exposed as something that AI can do. At this point, based on the current understanding of AI, what are the types of positions falling into mm -hmm. the safe zone? I think a doctor whose business model depends upon seeing you for as little time as possible is more prone to having their work automated than someone who goes for that human contact. Adding a dimension of a human relationship to something, like if you're selling insurance, that's so easy now to put an AI in front of, but the AI is not going to have the empathy for your position that a human can bring to it. And so looking for those opportunities, and hopefully this is what AI gives us the opportunity to do. Why did that doctor get into the field just so they could get the patient out of the door as quickly as possible? No one goes to medical school with that being the goal. They were forced to do that because the business had bureaucracy, paperwork. Let's get the AIs doing that instead of the talking with the patient. That's where we should be putting this work. So this is my challenge to everyone listening. Put the AI to work doing the things that people don't want to do. I love that, Peter. The way you're describing it, AI can help us be even more human and focus on the humanity rather than processing like machines. I would love to get your thoughts and perspectives also on industries or sectors that you see will most likely be disrupted as a result of the current trajectory of AI development. I know AI can be used in every single role in every organization, but some have a much greater potential of disruption as a result of AI. Where do you think those disruptions would be? That's an excellent question. I think some industries obviously will be affected more than others and some sectors more than others. But rarely does one see like an entire company is going to be replaced. They have some facets of it that lend themselves more to automation than others, HR, accounting, and so forth. And we are seeing more of that happen. I think more in terms of what's the impact upon certain roles and the way that we are evaluating the impact of automation, I think, has a long way to go. For instance, there was a famous study done in 2014 by the Oxford Martin Program for the Future of Employment that was famously quoted as concluding that 47% of all tasks were going to be automated within 20 years. Actually, people take it as 47% of all jobs. And they did that by studying about 700 different job classifications and the extent to which they embodied repetitive tasks, whether they were physical or cognitive. And from that, they concluded, for instance, retail point of sale clerks were over 90% likely to be automated and CEOs less than 5% automated. I would bring both numbers in much more because the repetitive physical tasks that a lot of point of sale clerks do is, for instance, like folding clothes and putting back on hangers. We are nowhere close to the level of robotic automation that can do that at all, let alone cost effectively. On the other hand, a lot of what CEOs do 
short of meeting peers on the golf course, but integrating information from the other members of the C-suite to make strategic decisions. I'm sorry, that is something that can be automated to a considerable degree. And the company that is brave enough to do that first is going to get a large jump on the competition. That is a scary thought for a lot of CEOs and executives hearing it. But that's also why I think for people who have gone deeper into understanding AI, they recognize, as you mentioned, Peter, some of the traditional conversations around AI taking away blue-collar jobs and leaving white-collar jobs intact has been flipped on its head in that, as you mentioned, some roles require human dexterity and it's not cost-effective to have AI operating it, while roles that require massive amounts of information, bringing it together, analyzing it, and making decisions lend themselves to use of AI. Now, one of the other things you spend a lot of your time focused on is the ethics around use of AI and the bias that can be built into this, Peter. So how can we think about that both on a societal level and organizational level? Let me mention specifically, for example, many of us celebrated a chat GPT and it's, oh, wow, it's marvelous. At the same time, Google had similar capabilities, but they didn't put it out in the public, partly of concerns of the potential mistakes that it makes. Yet again, are we celebrating move fast and break things? And will we break more things with celebrating fast movements in AI? Great question. And there is a lot more focus on this now than there was five years ago when we had things like the YouTube algorithm that literally broke society, not deliberately, but accidentally by radicalizing the people who were on its platform following its recommendations. And the same was true of TikTok and Facebook. They're still trying to come to terms with that and grasp that. Are we going to break more things? Absolutely. And ChatGPT at the moment is reflecting the values of the people that made it to a certain extent, and more so the data that was fed. But I owe to say that you can take the ethical temperature of a company by looking at its software products and the decisions that it makes in even things as simple as its error handling. Just to bring it down to a really low level, but as a software developer, I was always able to look at some piece of software that was sufficiently complex and tell you about the values of the team that built it or the company that came from. And so we're seeing this now in much larger degree. But what's really encouraging is that now the field of understanding bias in AI has matured to a point where not that it is mature on an absolute level, but there is a whole industry of consultancies around ethics in AI. I've had several of those people on my show, and they talk about what they do for businesses that are concerned about ethics in the AI. And what that says is that there's enough business for them, that enough companies are concerned about this, that they're turning to these people and saying, help me, in the same way that they would a few years earlier have looked for an ESG consultancy. I'm curious also, Peter, about the societal implications and the things we need to keep in mind from a policy perspective 
moving forward. With this fast exponential impact of artificial intelligence, how do you think it will impact the society, jobs, and how should policymakers be thinking about this? Another great question. I just had a, a very recent interview with Risto Uk on my show, who is a researcher for the Future of Life Institute on the European Union's AI Act. So he's based in Brussels, and we had a long conversation about what's happening there. It's one of the most advanced pieces of regulation with respect to artificial intelligence. Of course, immediately get into definitional problems, like where are you going to draw the line between AI and data processing? Or do you need to? And if not, why? And different countries have got different approaches to this. Again, it's going to be reflective of the country's culture. United States philosophy is more move fast, break things, and regulate only when you have to. One of the groups that I've spoken to is the all-party parliamentary group on artificial intelligence in Britain's House of Lords, which has been working for years now, holding many meetings with different people, just so these legislators can get their heads wrapped around the impact of AI. And that group doesn't make legislation, but they talk to the people who do. And I am very impressed with the level of understanding that they've now created as a result. So again, we are definitely going to break more things. There will be more surprises, these large language models. You mentioned Google and alluded to the, the fact that they had one before ChatGPT was generally released, and that was called Lambda. And there was a famous incident in 2022 when their engineer, Blake Lemoyne, came out to the Washington Post saying that it was sentient and also had asked for an attorney to help it not get turned off and other things that predictably blew up and he ended up getting fired, not so much for causing the controversy, but really revealing this proprietary data because they hadn't released it. And as you say, they're more cautious, but also they have a lot more of an existing business to protect than OpenAI does. It is hard from a business model perspective. I had a great conversation with Steve Sasson, who invented digital photography at Kodak back in 1975 as a young man, and then a lot of different things that were built on top of it. So he was involved in the research and development through the late 1990s. And the challenge that Kodak had was their business model. They could make a lot more money from film, even though they had this thing called digital photography as it became better. So Google has that challenge. The concern that is in the back of my mind is looking back at social media's impact. Today, I was again seeing a graph about teen anxiety, especially in young girls and the impact of social media on that. Those are things we are just starting to understand. And social media is nothing in comparison with the potential of AI sensing emotions and then adjusting responses and everything else based on the emotions of the individual. So that's the concern with running fast and breaking things, because this time things that we break will be a lot bigger 
than last time. And they were very big, as you mentioned, whether with elections or mental health issues. Oh, I love that you mentioned that because it's central to the topic of my latest TEDx talk. So as a stereotype, the people working on AI, developing it, male geeks, and not that interested in the field of emotions. And if you look at the field of emotion, AI is dominated by women. People like Rana El Kaliubi, Rosalind Picard, Cynthia Brazil, and I could go on. And these are worlds that need to come together for exactly the reasons you were just getting at. We could have AI that helped teenagers deal with the social pressures of social media. We need that. It could be done. But if, again, I'm stereotyping, okay, but your stereotypical software developer is uncomfortable with dealing with emotional topics. They haven't had to deal with that as part of their training and experience. And it's too squishy. It's not hard science. A computer is completely predictable. It will do exactly what you tell it to do every time. People don't, which is why those developers don't tend to go into management or when they do, it often works out badly. But this is exactly the kind of marriage that we need in order for AI to mature at the level of where it interacts with people. And so I want more people that understand about human emotions to be working with and deeply embedded with at the people that are making these new things. That would definitely help for moderation in terms of where all of this is headed. I would like to revisit a part of a earlier question. Do you believe policymakers, whether on the international, national, or local level, have a role to play in guiding this? Or is the technology so fast moving that people that at this point don't even understand iPhones and how Facebook makes its money should stay away from trying to put boundaries on where AI is headed? That's a great question. And certainly the role of those policymakers has been we have two tools. We have a stick and a carrot. We can either give you subsidies or we can make you fill out a crippling amount of paperwork. And in some cases, just have legal penalties for doing certain things. Those are pretty primitive tools for adjusting the development of something so multifaceted. And so certainly I think regulators at the moment don't know what to do. They're taking a wait and see, let's learn about this approach and crossing their fingers that the market will solve this somehow. The European Union is not waiting. But then your question is a very good one. Is there something left for them to do? Is there something which they should be doing? And that's hard to answer because the biggest businesses at the moment are actually begging to be regulated. Facebook, Google are saying, please regulate us because <laughs> the paperwork is a large hit that they can absorb, but is a barrier to entry for small players. So to them, it would just help eliminate competition. It's not the greatest motivation. And I think the regulators are aware of that as well. I just don't know where the place is. But on the other hand, when I look at the effects that unconstrained 
use of algorithms in social media have taken us and clearly materially altered the outcomes of certain important elections, among other things, then something needs to be done. Is it going to be large, complicated, and ugly, and are we going to get it wrong to begin with? Yes. The fact that it's, we're going to get it slightly wrong doesn't mean we should stand back and wait 10 years to see what the consequences are. We need to act earlier. Now, AI hitting its exponential curve, Peter, I had a conversation with Azim Azhar last year. I love his book, Exponential Age, and he mentions whether it's AI, 3D printing, biotechnology, and renewable energy as being close to hitting their exponential curve and exponential impact. So when I have conversations with CEOs and executives, they feel a sense of overwhelm with the pace of change and how it's impacting their organizations. Many of them say, Mahan, we just got through COVID and this was really hard. And they did have to work really hard in leading their teams and organizations through COVID. So when you are guiding and having conversations, Peter, with executives and CEOs, in helping them try to understand enough about these exponential changes, especially in AI, to be able to ask the right questions, not necessarily have the right answers, but ask the right questions. Where do you tell them to begin? How do you tell them to start understanding it enough to know what to ask, when to ask, how to ask it? Great question. And I go back to my coaching background here because there is too much. And really what we're seeing at the moment is that people are taking on as much as they can stand and then some until it gets to the point where they say, I'm already burned out. I can't give any more. But they already have the sense that's not enough in any case. So I take this back to what are you here for? What is your purpose in doing this? What is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning that you wouldn't care if a machine automated? because you would still do it anyway. If I say, I've got this machine, I'll ask people, do you like ice cream? Most people say yes. Yeah, I've got a machine over here that off camera, can't see it, but I'll invent it one day. Eats ice cream, does a really good job of it. <laughs> no drips, less slurping, faster, gets that cone down, nibbled to perfection. Now, if I deploy that, are you going to give up ice cream because I've got something that does it better? Definitely not, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important to identify the core of what you do because... We want to be doing the things that we love the most. Otherwise, all we're looking at is how do we make the hamster wheel go faster? And what is the point? Your, your question boils down to how do I get stuff I don't like to do done faster? I'd say, what are you going to get out of that other than just exhausted? Find a way that you don't have to do it at all. And hopefully that's the promise of AI. So identify the things you don't want to do. And then how can you have AI do those things? Some of the guests on my podcast have mentioned their hope that in 10 years, we will have something akin to a digital clone of ourselves. Think of it as a AI butler, if you will, that can learn enough about us. Think like you're training chat GPT on what it's like to be you, a version of this is how to be Mahan, and that it can then take over those kind of things, scheduling your interactions with telemarketers or whatever, the things that you don't want to do. We can't do that at the moment. It's not trustworthy enough. 
But again, they're looking at 10 years out. So we will see parts of that nibbled away a bit by AI able to do some parts of that. So that's where we start. What a beautiful point and great analogy, Peter. Yes, I will enjoy the ice cream. And when you invent that machine, keep it for yourself. Don't give it to me. I want to enjoy that ice cream. And even in these conversations, I've been listening to a couple of the episodes of a chatbot interviewing a chatbot on tech news. It's likely that over the next six months or a year, there will be leadership conversations where a chatbot can have a conversation with another chatbot or with an individual. However, I enjoy learning from incredible people like you so much. I am not going to have the chatbot do that. So you make a great point. If you know your purpose, if you know what you want to do, you can automate and use AI to get rid of the things that you don't want and keep the core of that delicious ice cream, chocolate, whatever it is for yourself to enjoy. What a wonderful example and analogy on that front. So Peter, you do an outstanding podcast. You have your book. You have a couple of them on artificial intelligence. In addition to that, are there resources and practices that you find yourself recommending as leaders of teams and organizations want to learn more and become more like me, as I mentioned to you early on, the more I know, the more I realize how little I know. So <laughs> where do you send Mahan and the other executives and CEOs that want to learn more about AI and its application in business and organizations, as opposed to AI from a technological perspective? Some of the people we've already mentioned, Dan Turchin's got a great podcast on AI and the future of work and his business people reign. And you mentioned Azim Azar. I subscribe to his work and he's also got a community of people and we've had some interaction and exchange of people there. And I find those the most useful in general. And once you start wanting to get more detailed, then you have to drill down into a particular vertical. And at that point, we've lost all the other verticals that are listening in. But those are the people I find that have the most useful perspective on this level. Some of the other people I follow are Peter Diamandis and Andrew Ng, who you mentioned earlier, and the Inside AI newsletter. Those are outstanding resources. I appreciate that. And I especially appreciate your TED Talks, your books, and your own podcast, Artificial Intelligence and You. As I mentioned, I am binge listening to them. I really enjoy your humility and your curiosity in those conversations as they help me learn a lot more about AI and its application to businesses, organizations, and its potential impacts on the community and society. You say in your book, we are all creating and predicting the future, but doing it unconsciously. Time for us to do it more consciously. To avoid crisis, we need to become conscious futurists. So thank you so much, Peter, for helping all of us become more conscious futurists. Thank you so much, Peter Scott. Oh, thank you, Mahan. This is my ice cream. This is what I live for. 
You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.